Welcome to the Dignified People podcast, shining a light on systemic oppression and what we can do about it. Hey everyone, I just wanted to provide a little bit of background on the upcoming podcast. So I was part of a discussion on self-determination last week and I just recorded it and I want to share it with all of you because I think it's a really important concept for everyone to understand And so if you're unfamiliar with self-determination, it's pretty simple. It's just allowing people the opportunity to make choices for their own life. So this discussion is based off of um, a YouTube video, which I will link um, in the show notes. So you guys can check that out if you want to check it out before or after either way. Um, I think that both the podcast and the YouTube video will be really, really helpful for you. And then um, we kind of go on a couple of different tangents here, but overall, I think all of the info is good if you're trying to learn more about um, self-determination in the disability community and as well as like um, just for kids in general and ourselves. I think that it's a really interesting concept and we kind of touch on this a little bit too that you know, we really have to focus on uh, self-determination for people with disabilities because self determination for everyone else is just a given and so why this even has to be a discussion um, blows my mind and you know that people with disabilities are capable of making their own decisions and something that the video talks a little bit about is um, needing different supports and everyone needs supports some people might need more supports than others, but um, I have supports that I need. And the video points out, you know, one of the, the supports that a lot of people use is GPS to help us get places um, effectively. Um, another support I use is having my, my calendar send me text updates on uh, what I need to do for the day in the morning. So it sends me a little text that says, hey, here are all these appointments you have at these times. I also use some project management software to keep me on top of just my daily to-do list and things like that too. So there's several other supports that I utilize, but I think that it's really important to understand that, you know, people with disabilities aren't unique in needing self-determination. We all have self-determination. We all need self-determination, something everyone wants. And just because we might need supports or more supports than other people or just different supports because not all people with disabilities require the same supports, just like the supports that I need are going to be different than the supports that you need. So I just think it's a really um, interesting discussion because it's strange that it has to be a discussion. And so as you're going through this and thinking about it, um, one of the topics that comes up in throughout the discussion is like what age or like when and how do we promote self-determination in children and what does that look like in letting kids make their own choices while still, you know, as parents trying to set them up for a great future and how, how can we balance all of that? And I don't think we necessarily answer that question in our discussion, but I would love to hear your feedback on what your opinion is on how we can gracefully instill self-determination from a very, very young age. And if you guys have any thoughts on how we can better promote self-determination in all people, 
I would love to hear those thoughts as well. And so with that, I will let us go ahead and get into the podcast. Okay, so I sent out the video last night, and I apologize for the late delivery on that. Um, For some reason, I had it in my head that I had already sent it out. So I was like, oh my goodness. Um, We are very fortunate that we kind of live at the hub of a lot of self-determination research that's going on. Carrie Shrogan has done some amazing work on that topic. Um, And as you all know, she's in the USAID, and we have, you know, kind of a direct pipeline access to her, which is really exciting Mm -hmm. if self-determination is something that you're interested in um, or using it in your work. So I really felt like out of all of the pieces that were out there, hers was the most comprehensive, but also had very much a connection to our cohort. Mm -hmm. So I felt that that was the best choice to use. Um, What I'll just start with, what did you guys think of the video? I loved okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. yeah, I thought it was super motivating. Um, it was cool because we do have such close access to her, so to hear a familiar voice and see a familiar mm-hmm. face, but um, just everything she was saying, she has such a nice way of putting things in such plain language, understandable terms. I'm like, yes, of course this is a good thing. It takes work off of other people. You know, it's yeah. just a, we want this for everybody, so I thought it was really powerful. Awesome. Um... As Candace and I talked about the kind of the direction that we wanted to take this conversation, we kind of collectively decided that we didn't want to focus really heavy on what is self-determination because we feel like at this point, this far end of end and everything that we've done, everybody at this table should know what self-determination is. Hopefully. So if you guys don't feel like you do, then circle back. Yeah. And <laughs> Candace and I will be happy to have a discussion okay. about you know what is self-determination. Um, but we really wanted to get into as... Um, community members, Mm -hmm. community leaders, providers, how do we take that content and then um, utilize that in our interactions with our patients? Um, So my first question to the group is, how do you think that the medical model um, impacts a person's ability to develop self-determination? I think a lot of times, especially in what I do, it's, it's like we come in and we say, here are the things you need to do just do them. Um, and I had this like conversation with um, the dietitian that w- before she took her maternity leave and talking about like there's all these providers coming in like you see like five or six providers in CF clinic and that like sometimes like maybe nutrition or like today like RT they're all important but maybe like today is not the most important thing for that family and so we talked about asking them you know like like, what are your goals today? Like, what do you need from me? And kind of, you know, if maybe nutrition isn't their their biggest concern today, however, you can relate nutrition or your piece to what they do need. Um, so we talked about that kind of stuff. Okay. Which is not uh, what normally happens. <laughs> it's kind of like meeting them more than. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I which would, I like that. Yeah. So, like, when I think of the medical model, I think of diagnosis, and then I think of the treatment directly mm-hmm. related to that diagnosis, not really reaching out to parents, family, anybody else. Mm-hmm. So, how can you really build self determination if nobody's right. asking you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Or just like telling you, like, this is what you will do. Mm-hmm. Have a nice day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Gotta go. The medical model is a lot of acting upon the person, yeah. which is really the opposite of development of um, self-determination. And that's kind of the point that I wanted to arrive at, is how do we, um, given the knowledge that we have about the importance of self-determination, take that next step to, instead of 
acting on, the people that we interact with, what do we do to bring them up? I think um, when we talk about self-determination, a lot of times we talk about individuals with disabilities, mm -hmm. but when we are working with young kiddos, so a lot of times we want to think about that family-centered piece in conjunction with the self-determination, because we are also only, if the child is only like two or three, mm -hmm. uh, we're not trying to promote the self-determination of the child, but we are focusing on how to help the family be more self-determined or making informed decisions and having, being more equal partner in the diagnostic, and more importantly, in the treatment basis. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of times uh, I, I find, like, especially in the diagnostic clinics, mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of sometimes it's hard and like you, you kind of come in such a short time and then you just want to tell them what your expert opinion is about their child and a lot of times there's not so much about like, you know, really having their input. I mean, you definitely ask input in regarding the diagnosis, but not mm -hmm. like so much about like what is the best recommendation for you and stuff like that. So I think there's definitely a lot to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going up with that, you know, the doctors might be the expert, but honestly the child and the parents are the expert because the child is with him or herself 24 hours and then the parents are with them maybe eight. Oh, I don't know how many hours, you know, but you learn what you need and how how can I get to this point and how can I need, how do I need your help to get to this point and not to have the experts say, well, I'm going to do this to this way and say, what do you need from me and, you know, because if you always, as an expert, as in my mind, let me just say, if you always tell me I'm going to do this and this and this for you, you're putting me down, basically. Which I can do it. I, it just, I might have to take a different route than anyone else. Absolutely. That's great feedback, Candace. Um, one of, one of the tools that I use for families a lot of times is the ARC self-determination scale. Mm -hmm. And the, there's an essay part in the middle that you can ignore, but the first couple pages is really excellent. Uh, I'm talking about um, how often, you know, I get to make my own meals, I get to go shopping when I choose, just very concrete questions. And a lot of times I use it as a, as a conversation starter with families. Mm -hmm. um, about let's fill, you know, mom, dad, you fill this out, and then you see areas where the, the, your 20-year-old is doing almost nothing for themselves, and you say, mm -hmm. how come they never make their own meals? Mm -hmm. How come mm -hmm. they don't do their own laundry? Or is there a physical limitation that needs to be overcome? Mm -hmm. Have you just never, you know, and I've had conversations with parents, well, I, mm -hmm. I just don't want them to lose money in the store, and if they're just going to buy with the wrong thing, it's like, well, time to start going shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and you never know unless it happens. Yeah. So. Um, so that's a great segue, Sean, into yeah. my next question, which is um, a little deep, but I felt like it would. I wanted to make sure that we took kind of this perspective on it of um, 
Carrie Shogren makes the point that self, we're all self-determined mm-hmm. and we all need supports. Mm-hmm. And that is something that none of us even blink at. It's just natural. Mm-hmm. So why do you think we as a society have gotten to a place where we even have to have the discussion about people with disabilities needing to be self-determined? Why is that not just the standard like it is for other, everyone else? Because I've been told no <laughs> so many times. Yeah, yeah growing up, you know, mm-hmm. not just basically, I don't know, I cannot say everyone, but there are a lot of people who told no, who said you do not belong here, you cannot do it. Mm-hmm. And then so, yeah, then gradually you just kind of like doubt yourself and mm-hmm. say, hey, you really cannot do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just historical ideas about hierarchy and authority and just old models about mm-hmm. who has the right to, I mean, it's not just disabilities, it used to be yeah. women not having self-determination yes. and mm-hmm. yes. people of color and, and unfortunately we're still left with folks with disabilities are still, still don't have those rights. Yeah. So. Let's say, no, oh. Jordan. Oh. Um, what she said, who's the person? Yeah, she said, this is your white. Everybody's white. This is everyone white. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, what Miss Lisa said, I think that hit me like, you don't have to own this. This is given to you because you were born, born in the United States, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I would say that socially though we are we are not a society um that recognizes things until they affect us you know i mean and you hear it a lot it's well yeah. why should i have to take care of that person again until it is your family mm-hmm. and it's like well why aren't you guys helping me <laughs> um so yeah but uh, i don't Sometimes family doesn't even help the whole mm-hmm. I've seen that. And, well, it's sad. and I think that goes back to it too. Like yeah. We are a very individualistic society. Yeah. yeah. So, and a lot of times, you, yeah, you do. You get married, and that's this is my family over here. Yeah. You guys yeah. take care of that. Or, yeah. Yeah, parents. Yeah. I also think there's money, profit and money to be made yeah. in exploiting yeah. people. Mm-hmm. We saw that in the piece rate wage issue, yeah. mm-hmm. that there is a large industry out there that makes money off of people with disabilities mm-hmm. in various various ways and and a lot of times when you start digging into who's fighting this change that seems like it would support mm-hmm. the self-determination of people with disabilities you find it's some of those industry folks you see it yeah. a, you especially see it with the nursing home mm-hmm. industry mm-hmm. Um, when advocates try to um, fight for changes for better quality or for for more inspections or those kind of things, the nursing home industries that right there fighting it all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when, um, including like getting into the nursing homes and helping to make sure people are registered to vote, those kind of things. Yeah. I think I really like that point. Uh, mm-hmm. Going back, it's not just about disability. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, there's kind of a corporate interest and also mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. voting rights. And also just think about mm-hmm coming from a country like China, mm-hmm. there's disability issues, but there are also human rights issues. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think ultimately it's a, it's really the oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to be self-determined. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they don't want any Chinese people to be self-determined so mm-hmm. that they can rule you all the time. Mm-hmm. So 
Sorry, I feel like I'm being a little bit. No, 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 you're fine. What is that? That's a wonderful I'm a little emotional today. No, it's good. It's all great. Sorry. Yeah. A strong feeling. Yeah. So, um, how do we as leaders fix that? Tell you shoot at somebody. <laughs> also known as turning up the heat. Yeah. You know, we are we are not far from the end of Lend. It's you know, it will be at the rate that March went by. <laughs> it will be here before we know it. And I think about um, you know, as I was preparing this content, just thinking about when that day comes and we all go our different ways, what are what pieces are we gonna take from Lend with mm-hmm. us? And how are we going to impact the communities that we interact with um, with that information? So knowing that oppression is something that the population that we're going to deal with deals with on a daily basis, knowing that we have a society that doesn't necessarily see people with disabilities as able, um, how do we combat that? I liked what Mercedes said. Well, this wasn't... Yeah. Um, so, uh, during part of it, she was talking about, like, when you see something, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you can believe what yeah. you believe all day long, and that's great, but what do you actually do when something happens? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to use our voice to advocate, to educate, um, yeah. in whatever setting that we're going to. And when we went to that legislative day, what they were saying, you don't have to yell at somebody or get in a fight with somebody. Um Give them facts, like slowly give them facts. Yeah. Show them how it really does benefit them. Show, yeah. I think that's something that's really important. Like going in and s- slowly, but sometimes, I mean, sometimes people don't even notice it. Yeah. <laughs> slowly <laughs> make sure we're going in the right direction. Here you are with those sales skills again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> but then you, before that, you have to know that there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. And you have to know, okay, I see the problem, so what am I going to do? Because if you, if you're the person that said there's a problem here, but you don't do nothing, then nobody else is going to do it. So you have to change for somebody else to see. Oh, okay, they're right. There is a problem here. Let's come together. You know. Yeah. So before that, you have to know in your mind what, what, will you not do or what you do. I do think like in our respective disciplines, like thinking about it starts with us. So going back to the diagnostic piece, when we were thinking about sharing diagnoses or a treatment plan, like really including the person, their family in that conversation, not just thinking about right now, but Mm -hmm. in the future. So I know Alice and I have had some conversations about like when we're offering resources, like not assuming that a family may not want that or, you know, maybe a kid mm-hmm. too high functioning to think mm-hmm. about a thing like a CBDO. And so I know I've started mm-hmm. incorporating conversations with families during feedback. Like, this might be not something you might not want right now, but yeah. think about what they might want in the future. And yeah. thinking about that person mm-hmm. even yes. 10, 20 years from now mm-hmm. and providing that information, regardless of whether or not we think, or even the parent might think. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of going back to that self-determination mm-hmm. piece. I, the number of parents I've talked to who, when their child was diagnosed as sex with autism, didn't want to even think about the CBDO or long-term care needs. And at 15, mm-hmm. they're back needing the number of the CBDO because they figured out that, oh, that we, we are there and we are qualified for that. That's a huge number of folks. And then the other controversy is that we know that families sometimes can't afford things and different treatments because of insurance, mm-hmm. things like that. 
And I always believe in telling people what's out there, whether or not we know they can afford it or not, because they need to be able to make those decisions and and know know what's out there. Yeah. I would say also not assuming that somebody else told them. It's not, you know, it's okay yeah. if yes. they have a previous mm-hmm. provider or anything, just double check. You know, mm-hmm. you might already have this, but just in case, I want to make sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, something, too, talking of class, or about class, I don't know how mm-hmm. other people feel, but I know that during our classes, you talk about best practices. Mm-hmm. This is what you, you should be doing. This is mm-hmm. how you should be treating people. Um, and I don't know, like, so we've had where ours will have first year and second year, mm-hmm. and hearing people come back that did their field study, it's like, well, in the school, we just couldn't do it. We just didn't have time to do it. Mm-hmm. So making sure we don't fall into that trap. That mm-hmm. we're literally being told right now that this is what we, this is what we should be doing. So trying to find a way then to make that work mm-hmm. versus immediately going to that, there's no time, I can do what I can do, and that's it mentality. So really... If we don't have high standards, why would other people? And that's, yeah, that goes back to turning up the heat, mm-hmm. even when it's uncomfortable, particularly in these school district situations. Yeah. Like when it's time to say, no, I don't accept that, I'm not mm-hmm. going to go along with that, you know, even if it is going to cost you some personal relationships, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. You have to say, that's not okay, no, I'm not going to wait a year, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, sorry. And also, I think as parents, as, you know, young, young adults or young kids, I think you have to let them know why this isn't okay. Mm-hmm. Even though it might be hard to, if you just took them somewhere new, it's like if you move somewhere and not know why, you move, you'd be like, oh, crap, what what I do, you know, why am I here? But, your parents will explain, like, we're moving here because this, this, that. So, uh, just like any other time, explaining this is why we're doing this because it's not right. Oh, this is better over here. So, making sure that, yeah, that yes, you have the child grants interest, but letting them know and just not acting upon it. I love that. I think the big takeaway for me was um, presuming competence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a parent, people look to me for the way that I treat my children and they follow suit. So when mm-hmm. I talk to my nonverbal child, you know, functionally nonverbal mm-hmm. child, as you know, just like I would talk to his overly verbal sibling, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. people see that and then that changes the interactions. Yeah. And so. Mm-hmm. incorporating that into the way that we interact with children, you know, whether you're going into a home, providing first steps or, you know, mm-hmm. tiny case services and really using that, you know, all the way across the lifespan to mm-hmm. treating the individuals like you would treat anybody else. Just like what Cassie D said, my, as you know, I walk a little <laughs> I didn't know that, but, you know, my family... They, when people stare at me, or, you know, even when I'm younger, they'll be like, why are you staring at her? You know, when people ask my family member, what's wrong with her? They'll be like, she's just crazy, what's wrong? <laughs> but knowing that as a family member or whoever, knowing that you need to, you should accept, well, of course you're going to accept them, but like the other person who asked me, 
those questions to know like nothing is wrong with them to accept them or just move away, you know? Not move away, you know? But just knowing that if you're gonna be their friend, don't be their friend just in front of their face and not behind their back, but even when they're not there. Don't don't ask a child's don't ask a question that you need to ask to a child to their parent unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. I mean, I'm noticing how often this is happening with my daughter, and it's just getting more and more infuriating every day. Just the assumption that I even people in my own family, like my own dad and stepmom, does she want ranch dressing? I don't know. Ask her. You know, I just, I'm, I'm just about had enough of that. And I think as providers, you can do the same thing. Make sure that people are always directing questions to the child and giving them an opportunity to answer. And be and be careful about what you're saying in front of the child. Don't talk about this person like they're not in the room. Even if they're over there, don't talk about them like they're not in the room. That doesn't happen just to child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, adults as well, of course. <laughs> Children and adults, yeah. So. And with what you were saying about explaining things, I think that goes inside the treatment room too. You can't target something if you're not explaining why. You know, why you're doing it, why is it important. Um, and asking the person you're with. You know, how do you feel about this? Yeah. Does this work for you? Does this work for Yeah. We really push that in the psychoeducational clinic at KU when we're doing like assessments and then potentially giving a diagnosis. When you do provide that report at the end and it's got this list of recommendations, one of the things we grade students on is did you ask what do you think about these things? Not just do you have any questions? Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between do you have any questions about everything I just told you and what do you think about <laughs> everything I just told you? Yeah. So we really focus on that. That's a great question. Yeah. yeah. I think, it, you know, because do you have questions about this content? No. But did you get to the heart of, are you actually going to use this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or to throw them out. Yeah. 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 It's not going to yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If they're not going to do it, what's wise to Sometimes when I'm working with especially parents of young adults or, or older adolescents and they're seeking an intervention, a behavioral intervention, um, the first question I ask is, why are you doing that? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. if, if we're, okay, let's establish we're not, you know, beating up younger siblings and pushing people down the stairs <laughs> and, the, you know, crisis level behaviors, we're not doing any of that, but you're seeking a behavioral intervention. What, why do you, why are you seeking to do that as opposed to self-determined, teaching self-determined behaviors? And, and why wouldn't you kind of use those principles to teach those self-determined behaviors instead of just running some sort of ABA kind of thing to control a person's day or personal schedule? Yeah. Yeah, and on the topic of ABA, I don't mean to take up too much airtime, yeah. but ABA is a very authoritarian field. Mm -hmm. And that needs to be talked about a lot more than it is. And I, my child was involved for years with an ABA center that was extremely authoritarian to the point of, if we're gonna have a meeting, you need to listen to me tell you what you need to do with your child at home. And don't take up too much of our time with, well, we have this other idea. I mean, it was just, and, and there is, and it's not just with that particular center, it is kind of a thread running through a lot of, there are a lot of BCBAs who behave that way. They don't always even want to take in the input of other professionals. 
um, like occupational therapists, physical therapists, and speech language pathologists. And so we, we need to, I think, be talking more about that and how that particular field, and I wish there were more, I don't know if you ever have ADA providers, professionals who join the LEND program. Uh, on Saturday, <laughs> 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 Alice is like, hey. <laughs> Is this, is this a field that you work in? Is that why you're... So I appreciate those input. I feel like I have heard a lot from parents about how ABA sometimes tend to be kind of not really incorporating parents' input and things like that. I, I definitely agree with you because uh, uh, there's a part because I think because the ABA kind of think that we do things really in an evidence-based way and very mm -hmm. scientific way. We take data, we respect exactly. data. And then when we are presented with another treatment or suggestions, we always think, is there a literature review based uh, behind this? Is there evidence behind this? So that's a lot of times, I think that's why a lot of people behave that way. Yeah, but there's definitely. no excuse for, mm -hmm. you can present in a more, in a way that I, I, I want to present why I'm not, I'm not behind this treatment, but still, I understand why you want to do this. We can try this. We can collect data, and we can see whether it works. Yeah. So there are different ways to do it. And that's where it looks really good. Yeah. 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 Some people, I think when it's done really well and done more thoughtfully, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm totally fine with all, hearing all those suggestions. I, I definitely think that uh, as an organization, um, ABA should be um, uh, I, I, I will give you an example. Like I went to a ABAI conference, and then there are very few people with disabilities there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's probably true for a lot of provider conference, <coughs> but I just feel like there there should be more input from people with disability, people with mm -hmm. autism, so that you can really hear how you are you know mm -hmm. you are providing your service. Mm -hmm. uh, so I definitely agree with you. Uh, and I hope that you know there's a lot of more conference locally and internationally. I hope parents and uh, individuals with autism as advocates um, can attend those conferences as well. Sure. Actually, there is a you're not, in, you're not in Kansas, right? Yes, you are in Kansas. Uh -huh. There's a yep. Kansas of um, ABA conference uh, actually this Saturday. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, is that what you were going to say? Yeah, yeah. Ken Slava <laughs> at the Edwards this Saturday. Yeah. So there will be 150 behavior analysts. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and also, yeah. I feel like, I don't know, I don't no, really, well, I'm not on their committee or anything, well, but I feel like there should be more. Where, where, where I like to share about you know, ABA mm -hmm. is that they're the scientific principle of ABA, which is we make data driven decisions mm -hmm. and how data interacts with. <laughs> doing programming changes for, for people, that's very valid. And yes. I would ask a speech pathologist or an OT to produce the same kind of data, yes. showing that what they're doing is actually making an impact. Mm -hmm. And that that's the principle of ABA, because for ABA, this is the principle right. that, that, that you make data-driven decisions. There, then there gets to be the ethical and the practice areas of ABA, which is where I think some of the controversy comes, because you know, it's, when you listen to people with autism who are adults as self-advocates, they, a lot of them have PTSD or they have strong reactions to the ABA programs they were a part of because they remember this very controlling, very, th that 
out of its purpose. Because the purpose of ABA, the original research, was two to four, two to four to five year olds, you can remap neural pathways, you do repeated exposures to interventions, you know, 20 hours a week. That's what the research says. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't work with nine year olds the same way. Once you're nine, your brain's not gonna be remapped the same way, and the ABA becomes how do I make data-driven decisions to make this, allow this child to have more opportunities in the school, to make friends, all those kind of things. And so people conflate sometimes, even within the mm -hmm. PCBA field, that piece. They miss the part that once kids are six, we stop, the autism waiver stops at six in Kansas for a reason. Um, we stop this part of the ABA and we move on to something else. Also, that early intervention <coughs> stuff isn't for every child. There are some children that don't respond to that and you're just, you're, you're just causing issues for that child as opposed to actually making progress, which the data should be showing, and an ethical BCBA would be changing up the programming if the data's not showing I, that. I, I would argue yeah. that, uh, uh, I, I, I first I, I yeah. agree with you, ABA is a big principle in terms yeah. of evidence-based uh, uh, driven uh, making decisions, and also ABA is about teaching uh, the behavior, using the behavioral principles mm -hmm. and techniques. Yeah. So, uh, so sometimes we think about ABA, we think about having a child sit at a desk mm -hmm. to, to learn mm -hmm. like 20 hours a week, that's ABA. But at the same time, if, if you teach, if you take a child to the park and help the, making sure the child does not stay with the parent or with the mm -hmm. therapist, that's still ABA. Yep, yep. So yeah. uh, I, I think sometimes uh, there's the traditional no lowest like the mm -hmm. model mm -hmm. that's kind of very rigid in the, in the in the at the desk, but there are a lot of mm -hmm. more naturalistic teaching methodology as mm -hmm. well. Sure. So, so I am strongly believing that uh, using the right behavior principle techniques can help every child with autism or without mm -hmm. autism. Because we're using behavior principles every day, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I, I do not believe that uh, ABA only works for certain child, or doesn't work for certain child. But I just think that the the effects may be different, may that may vary. <laughs> that's how I how I strongly believe. But um, yeah, I but, but I think that's the point I was making that the principles of behavior and using data to make data driven decisions and and how you write a good behavior intervention program. Yeah. That's the same for all children. If you're a child and who's in state custody, who's having, who's got some BD things going on, you use those same principles to write a, a behavior plan that you would do for a child with autism. So, so, but again, that rigid rigidity sometimes gets extended and conflated. Yeah. The, other, the other thing I was going to say ethically is with ABA sometimes. I've been at all the Kanzawa conferences, so I've heard some interesting presentations over the years. Mm -hmm. You know, BCBAs don't just work in autism, they work in industry. So mm -hmm. you hear presentations about, or some presentation about how um, one factory had these headphones that workers kept on and they gradually increased the amount of audio input that person got to which packages they were to pull to increase the efficiency of people pulling packages and of course the workers had no idea that was being done to them and, and so this is where we're, we're running head on into ethical issues that does your employer have a right to subtly manipulate your environment like that without your knowledge instead of putting just out and out goals in front of you I mean those are some real ethical 
issues that that ECBAs talk about and have controversy about within that industry, but the same kind of ethical issues collide sometimes for working with families, working with kids. What do you do with a family that's not probably very compliant with an APA program you're putting together? How do you modify what you're doing to the, so they can at least be successful with a small part of it? Those are all those are all things that are talked about a lot yeah. within that within that context. But I, I feel like we could, yeah. I feel like we could definitely have a whole other topic on. Yeah, I mean that would be a whole conversation. That would be a good Alice and Linda right. session. Yes. Well, and Sean, you made a really good point that I want to use to kind of pull us back to the topic of self determination and. You made the comment that early intervention doesn't work for every child. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really kind of the beginnings of mm -hmm. when are we letting the child indicate to us that what we're doing to them is positively impacting them rather than just assuming mm -hmm. everybody needs early intervention. You know, how are we taking that child's input or output, their behavior? Um, are we taking that into consideration as we do some of those things so that we're not scarring the child and giving them PTSD? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Because, I mean, five-year-olds have the right to chime in about their life, just like everybody else does, especially when you think about that. So I thought that was a good point. I think that's where the importance of the documentation comes in. Mm -hmm. So you have the objective data, you know, are they doing what they're doing, but also the subjective, like, is, is this child crying the whole time? You know, are they looking down? Will they not come back to the table when I go to the, you know, out to get them? Do they run away from me? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then ensuring that what we're doing, so, I mean, what I do is going to be a little bit different, mm -hmm. but that's my job as a professional, too, is to find the activities and the goals that work for that child, yeah. not that work for me. So mm -hmm. it, it is important to read the cues mm -hmm. of the child. And I think about just that, what I said earlier, that are, are we acting upon or are we mm -hmm. building them up? So I... I think we're talking about ADM treatment. One thing that has caught, uh, let me think a lot is like about self-esteeming behaviors. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like a lot of times, like if you hear from like young adults or teenagers or autism, they say they really, uh, they really benefit from having those steaming behaviors. So I'm at the, I, that's something mm -hmm. that I really had to con uh, attribute to the land experience, because before that, um, as a BCBA, a lot of times what we learned is that you have to address like uh, uh, excessive behaviors, which includes self-stimming behaviors. And then, um, so now when parents ask me, like, you know, how can we address this? I would say, you know, we all do those kind of things, and it doesn't, uh, probably us, it's just a little, more, a little bit more self socially acceptable. And if you really think it's uh, interfering with things, maybe try to help your child to do it in another room or, you know, in an environment that is more accept acceptable, uh, not interfering with his study and that stuff. But at the same time, I'm thinking like uh, the BCBA, our like com uh, ethical code and stuff, our client is not just the child, but also the parents. So when parents want us to address those stimming behaviors, should we say no? Um, I went to a conference that talked kind of about that, yeah. and what I really liked about um, what this person was saying, and I can send the materials, it's kind of cool, um, but she was saying if you try to take something away, it's going to pop up somewhere else. Mm 
mm-hmm. and not addressing any. Now, that's, just that's, gonna a, that's another thing that I want to mm-hmm. emphasize. Mm-hmm. It's like when we address the we address the function of the behavior. Mm-hmm. So if we want to reduce some behavior, we will provide a, redu- a yes, replacement. Exactly. Right. So um, for the parent part, something that she suggested was talking to the parent, mm-hmm. and then going back for the parent to the child. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just explaining. You know, if you're doing this, like that's fine. Just know, other people might interpret this, but that's it's you. Like the same way right. that you talk to your kid. Like if your kid has a, I don't know. My friend's kid likes to wear his underwear. That's an unexpected behavior. Yeah. Yes. That's something mm-hmm. unexpected. So when he says something randomly out of the blue that makes no sense or is even could be interpreted wrong, you say that's an unexpected behavior. You wouldn't do that. And so he knows when we say that's an unexpected mm-hmm. behavior, that's a check, and he's sort of learned that, oh, I need to stop talking about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that that's, I think that that brings up a huge um, component of how do we teach parents about self-determination and, you know, helping parents understand that the purpose of early intervention isn't to make a child less autistic or less disabled. The purpose is to empower them to be the best possible self that they can be. And sometimes that means, you know, they're going to do things that are outside of the box Mm -hmm. and to what extent, you know. Well, we are doing things outside the box. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, yeah absolutely. So. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, and I also, when families call and there's crisis, there's all sorts of family system things that are causing all sorts of issues. And of course, the kiddo with autism is you know, attacking the sibling, responding differently to stepdad, doing, I mean, there's a complex situation. But the question I ask is who's more likely to change their behavior? the four neurotypical people in the household or the child with autism. Yeah. It's the people with, who, without autism who have a lot more ability to change their behavior. So I talk, we talk about mom and dad, why don't you change how you respond mm-hmm. to your child or change your behavior? Um, and I, one of the things I frequently get is, is that, well, I can do that, but dad, his dad doesn't believe in this or doesn't think this is something that he should do. It's like, well, that's probably the inflexibility that's causing the problem, not the inflexibility of the child. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then let's talk about a counsel, a marital counselor. Because the inconsistency between two parents is hard for typical kids, but a kid with autism, that could be what's I'm great, down, great at school, yeah. but not great at home. <laughs> yeah. I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the society's perception of people with you know, disabilities. Is the, you've got an entire family assuming that the child with a disability mm-hmm. is the one with the problem, but mm-hmm. everybody else in the room has their own yes. stuff to work on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people with disabilities do become the lightning rod. Mm-hmm. It's easy to single them out. It's easy, yeah. easy to point them out, easy to act like they're the ones with the problem, when in reality it's probably everybody mm-hmm. else's own dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And then expectations, yeah. I would say too. We're setting expectations that we wouldn't set for a neurotypical mm-hmm. person, yes. so I would be. I had um, I had someone that 17, and they're 17, you know? So some of the things that parent was noticing that I wouldn't have noticed, but they wanted everything to be perfect, but that's <laughs> that's not how it is on a team. You know, they, I mean, they, they cooperated, they did all the activities, oh, but they laughed. 17. I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just glad they came to the room with me. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, I, and I see that also working with families sometimes um, where we've got a kiddo that's just rocking it out and doing everything they possibly can, but they have a learning disability or autism or, mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of stuff going on. And you really honestly looking at that child's success, couldn't ask for more. And the family, because the dad's a doctor, mom's a lawyer, yeah. and all his siblings are in medical school, mm -hmm. he's a failure. Yeah. And and they're wanting to do interventions or wanting to do some sort of therapeutic type intervention because this child is working 30 hours a week at Walmart. This literally has happened more than a handful of times, the calls we get sometimes. And, and you know, so, so, so sometimes disability is in the perception of not just society but the family and that influences mm -hmm. that. That child as well. That's it. My disability, well, and this is just me. My disability is a blessing to my family and to myself. Mm -hmm. They got to learn how to, um, how to make me work, I guess. Or how to help you thrive. Yeah, they, yeah, they can. <laughs> you know, and it all, it all goes back on how you perceive it, you know, and you shouldn't let other people who's on the outside influence your relationship with your kid and whoever. So, you know, I don't care if Lisa makes fun of me, she's not going to. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to do what I got to do to do X, Y, and Z because nobody's going to pay my bills for me almost. You know, or whatever. So, as a self advocate, that's how I look at it. As you have to, when you first get the diagnosis, you have to be like, okay, this is a positive thing. God or whoever you believe in, bless me with this to teach me how to teach other people how to act towards somebody with a disability or whatever they are, you know, and that's how I see it. What I said, God gave me Matthew to teach me how to have patience. Yeah. <laughs> but to love. Yes. Unconditionally, because yes. that's what he does. He loves mm -hmm. absolutely unconditionally. What time is it? 445. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and wrap up, because I know everybody's got meetings and stuff to do. Um, thank you, everyone. For your great comments. I think it was a very awesome dialogue that all of us can take and um, take out to our community. Continue to be the leaders that we are. So. Oh, me? <laughs> can I ask a question to you, too? Now that, because like you said, like, Len is almost over. Thinking about this, like, thread of self determination that's sort of been running through this whole year, I wonder how many folks in this room have taken the self-determination inventory or done the scale from the R or done on your, for yourself as in your development as a leader. I don't know if anyone's had that opportunity and now looking back on the year, if you had that opportunity in the beginning as part of some of the self-assessment that you do, how that might affect your thinking around how you develop in terms of your sense of autonomy and mastery and purpose and connection to the work that you're doing. So I'll just throw that out there. You, can, you don't have to tell me right now, but one, one of the cool parts of that survey is after you get past the concrete stuff, there's some locus of control stuff, which basically, you know, research shows that kids with learning disabilities feel like they do not, they're not in control of their own destiny, essentially. 
Um, and so there's some really interesting questions about that. And those are really good professional questions too. How much control do you, how much control, self-determination do you believe you really, control you really have over the act? If I take this action, something good's gonna happen. And that's a good professional leadership question, I think, there. I think if you've ever read the book like Drive by Daniel Pink or others, mm-hmm. if you if you look up self determination, it is there's certainly a lot of work that's been done in disability, but it's a uni- it's sort of a mm-hmm. universal application and principle of kind of human motivation and human engagement. Yeah. So as you think about that, mm-hmm. so like so many things we talk about, this applies to all of us, mm-hmm. right? Totally. Regardless of our disability identity at this point. Yeah, so for me, like my self-determination comes in. When I was um, 16, I lived in Australia for a year by myself. And so it took me like two years to convince my parents to let me go because they didn't think I was responsible enough. And so then I, (laughs) because my parents are really great and also like because they're really great, like a little bit of like enablers. But um, (laughs) so they were like, well, you can't, like you're not responsible enough to blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I go and I'm 16, um, like the second half of my junior year through the first half of my senior year. um, Did great took care of myself you know I think I called my parents like once every three weeks and that's like yeah so just like all these things but like sometimes you just have to give like people the opportunity Mm -hmm. to like thrive and be like have their own self-determination because if you're constantly like you know just looking over their shoulder it's not going to happen fail we all fail yeah right and that's where we learn our lessons yeah my son has had a job and he's going through a thing right now where He's had a couple problems recently, and he may lose his job. Um, and he has a job coach and everything, and so things are just not fitting. And he may—he's facing the prospect of losing his first job. And and so that's something we've been trying to work with him on. And and he's kind of reflecting mm-hmm. since he hasn't been able to work for a couple weeks while we kind of work this thing out. He's been kind of reflecting on. Well, I guess that's probably something I should do in the future when. I'm, when I'm asked to do something, because if he doesn't want to do something, he tries to hide and not do it. (laughs) And so he's kind of figuring out some of those things that he should have been doing. And But when I was 18, that's the thought process I went through with my Mm -hmm. first Mm -hmm. know, So he's learning that, and he has to have that opportunity to fail, maybe a little bit, to Mm -hmm. make that growth. And of course, as parents, we also want them and his grandma is beside herself and is saying, it is so mean, they should, fu- they should fire him and, and somebody needs to do something and it's like, no, this is, they have to make that decision, you can't force them to have them, you know, but poor grandma is really upset. <laughs> <laughs> That was the Dignified People podcast. Thank you for listening and tune in next time to continue to be a part of something bigger.